Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Frederick Studeman, the FT's literary editor, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. There's a new book out about Coke Industries that shed light on the way this company has shaped modern America. The book, Coke Land, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America, focuses on the role of the obsessive and sometimes secretive Charles Koch and the way he has mixed business and politics over the decades to create what the author Christopher Leonard calls a, quotes, privately controlled free market utopia. Well, Andrew Edgecliffe-Johnson, our U.S. business editor, has read the book and has reviewed it for us as well. And he's with me on the line to discuss the book and the issues that it addresses. Andrew, Christopher Leonard details in his work how Coke Industries has come to epitomize the power of wealthy corporations in the States and their ability to shape both the economy and possibly even the country's politics. I mean, could you just describe that? I'm guessing a lot of our listeners may not know that much about Coke Industries. Yeah, this isn't a household name. It's a big business, but it's involved in some fairly invisible activities like derivatives trading and energy pipelines. It does make a few consumer products like Dixie cups and paper towels, but it's not P&G. It's not Warren Buffett, but it's actually a huge company. It's the second largest private company in America, second only to Cargill. It's got about $110 billion in revenues. And it's made the two men who've run it for most of the last 50 years extremely rich. If you put the combined wealth of Charles and David Koch together, it would be bigger than anybody else on the planet apart from Jeff Bezos. So it's basically a private company and it's controlled by a family. You say there's two brothers, but I gather there's a whole bunch of them. Is it in its modern incarnation the creation of the present generation or is it one of those so-called storied great American businesses that's been with us for a while? Coke Industries is only a second-generation company. It was founded by Fred Koch in Wichita. He had four sons. Only two of them really ended up running the business. One was there for a while and fell out spectacularly with his brothers, ending up pursuing them first through the boardroom and through the media, the courts, with private investigators and all sorts of things. One never really came into the business. But Charles and David Koch ended up buying out their other two brothers in the midst of all this animosity. And they have pretty much total control of the company now. David stepped down last year. He retired, citing ill health. And it's really very much the creation of one man. It's Charles Koch, who took this business 52 years ago, he inherited from his father, and transformed it from a company with just 300 employees and a few operations, a refinery, some pipelines, some cattle ranches, into something of enormous scale and $110 billion in revenues and huge impact on the world. Right. But I think it's fair to say that while obviously there's an interesting business story to discuss, and we can come back to some of the elements of how they actually do it. One reason that a lot of people are interested in the Koch brothers, and particularly in Charles Koch, is politics, in that he and I guess his companies in some form have been very active in politics, particularly conservative politics. Am I right in saying that? If you say the words Koch brothers to almost anybody in New York where I'm sitting today, they will instantly start talking about their impact on politics, and they are 99% likely to be talking about their impact on the conservative side of the political spectrum Charles Koch is driven by very, very firm free market views, influenced by his reading of Austrian economists like Hayek. 
His father was actually a co-founder of the right-wing John Birch Society. Charles did his own reading, got very, very animated about what he saw as the excessive role of government in the markets. He's never quite forgiven FDR for the New Deal by the sound of Leonard's book. That's a long grudge to hold. (laughs) It's a long grudge to hold. And it's also... You have to remember the core of their business for most of the last 50 years has been in the energy markets, whether it's directly refining crude or shipping it around or trading derivatives off the back of it. So there's always been a very direct economic interest in getting government off the company's back when it comes to regulation, when it comes to taxation, when it comes in particular to issues around climate and fossil fuels. And how successful have they been, would you say? I mean, you say that the talk in New York is of their influence, but how meaningful do you think it really is? Or how meaningful does Christopher Leonard think it is in his book? I think that, you know, there is an awful lot of money in politics in this country. I don't think any two individuals have had quite the same impact over the last couple of decades as the Koch brothers. And it goes back further than that, as the book shows. This has its roots in the 70s. It's built up dramatically in recent years in terms of its scale, in terms of the money that the Koch brothers have put into supporting and opposing different candidates, different causes, different pieces of legislation, even at the local level. But at its core, this has reshaped the Republican Party in the Koch's image, and that has had profound impacts on the Democratic Party. What's interesting, to go back to your earlier question, is that Charles Koch in recent days actually published an op-ed in which he said, I've spent years funding partisan politics and the returns on that investment have not been satisfactory. I'm announcing a dramatic change. He's actually gone into business with George Soros, of all people, who is as loathed by the right as the Koch brothers have been by the left to form a joint think tank to work on all sorts of issues from criminal justice reform to others. So we will see how profound a commitment that is to a different way of doing business. But it is interesting to hear him talk that way. I think he'll be met by a certain amount of suspicion from Democrats, given the animosity that built up, particularly in the Obama years, as the Koch brothers fueled the rise of the Tea Party movement that derailed the Democrats in the 2010 midterms and really started to pave the way for Trump. But there's also been some issues some possibly even animosities with the Republicans. Am I right in thinking that Charles Koch and Donald Trump are not exactly best friends and that actually Koch supported pretty much any would-be candidate other than Mr. Trump in the Republican nomination process back in 2016. Yeah, they may both be heirs to family businesses, but uh, they have very little else in common apart from extraordinary self-belief, I would say. Donald Trump is ideologically nowhere near Charles Koch, and Charles Koch went into the 2016 election campaign backing the likes of Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, all the people that uh, the pundits thought were going to do well in that campaign. Donald Trump came out of nowhere, said publicly he didn't need the money of the likes of the Kochs, and that he was running against that kind of establishment, that he was going to drain the swamp. And if anybody stands for that swamp, it probably is the Koch brothers in many people's, uh, in many voters' eyes. So ideologically, tactically, Donald Trump didn't need their support. Koch, I think, was blindsided, if you believe Leonard's book, by the rise of Trump. And that set up a very uneasy start to the Trump administration with the Koch brothers and the advocacy group in Washington, their main one, Americans for Prosperity, which actually ended up lobbying against some of the early legislative efforts by the Trump administration, particularly around their efforts to repeal Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act healthcare legislation, which the Kochs thought was not the right way to reform healthcare. And secondly, a big component of the 
tax legislation, which ended up giving enormous benefits to large companies, as you know, there was initially going to be something called a border-adjusted tax in that legislation, which would have raised quite a bit of money to help pay for the tax reforms and the handouts to companies that came out of them. But it would also have damaged the Coke's businesses. Right. Just coming now to the business, you said earlier on the success of Charles Koch in taking this family company, this corporation, and turning it into something massive, second biggest private enterprise in the US. From a business journalist aspect, what's the secret to his success as a business leader? And what does Leonard tell us about that? I mean, how is he different to other business leaders in the US? In a way, what's so refreshing about this book is what a strong corporate profile it is. And what differs from previous books about the Koch brothers is that actually you only really get to the politics at the end of the book. And there is a huge chunk of this book about how Koch Industries actually runs. And it's really, really unusual. Charles Koch has not just a firm conviction about politics, but a firm conviction about how the world should work. And he has essentially codified that in his own empire. It starts with actually the sort of libertarian political principles that he espouses in his lobbying. It starts with the view of the market and the individual knowing best. So it empowers individuals in the company. They are very much empowered to pursue bottom line growth. This is a company which is constantly pushing into new markets. They're trying to find adjacent areas to the businesses they know well. And the way that they do that is they soak up information. You know, we talk about big data in companies. These guys have been doing this for decades. They've been furiously going out to find out everything they can learn, not just about their direct markets, but about their customers' markets, about their suppliers' markets. And when they see an edge in one of those markets, they will move into it. And that's allowed them to expand from what they started with into all these areas like derivative trading and even sort of extraordinary things like pig feed. But they don't just soak up information. They have extraordinary systems for learning from it. So I think were it not for the political cloud over the Coke brand, if you like, this would have spawned dozens of Harvard Business School case studies. It is a genuinely peculiar corporate culture, and it's one which is drilled into every recruit from the day they walk into the office in Wichita or anywhere else around the world. And it's got a name. You said that he'd codified his worldview. It's called market-based management which again goes back to the centrality of the market and the wisdom of the market that Charles Koch believes in. It's got, I think, eight or ten different components to it, from including things like integrity and humility, which sound very vague, but also those points about insight, about learning. And it is drilled in in a very, very practical way to literally everybody up and down the org chart, whether you're a derivatives trader or you're managing a piece of equipment in a refinery. Right. But I mean, there's also, I think, a darker side to it, if you like, that Leonard looks at, as others have as well. Tell me a bit about that. I mean, they've had less happier business experiences. Yeah. This is some of the most vivid writing in the book, actually. And Leonard does a wonderful job of picking characters in different operations in the far-flung Coke empire and following their stories to tell this bigger story. And his subtitle is about corporate power. And so a big part of the dark side that he relates is about how Coke used this very systematic process in the company to demolish the unions in parts of their operations. You know, they would do things like get students in to role model responses in negotiations to work out how people would crack, you know, how you could get rid of a holdout. And then they'd deploy that in their negotiations with the union and a local plant. But there's one particular story that's stuck in my mind, and that's about one of the most profitable refineries, where 
Leonard follows the story of an engineer whose job is basically to ensure safety, to ensure that it's not breaching the limits on pollution into the local river. And all sorts of horrible things come out of the refining process. One of the byproducts is ammonia. And so inside complicated pieces of equipment, which I won't attempt to describe in the refinery, are filters that are supposed to filter out the ammonia and prevent too many parts per million coming out into the wastewater. If you don't clean these filters, they don't do their job very well. What happened, as Leonard tells it, is essentially that the engineers, like the character he follows, were not profit centers. So they were not listened to in this very, very profit-oriented business. As a result, managers wouldn't stop the machines to clean the filters, and bit by bit, they stop working so well, and more and more ammonia starts coming out into the wastewater. And so people look for workarounds, and rather than tipping it into the river, they say, why don't we spray it over there on the field or on the forest? And they start doing this and say, we can't keep doing that. Let's fill up the uh, drainage tanks that we keep to fight fires with and things like that, the overspill. And they keep filling them, keep filling them, and then they start to threaten the plant. They look like they're going to spill over and flood the whole place. It's an extraordinary sequence of events and ends up actually with the company having to admit to having um, breached environmental laws and having to pay enormous fines, which set all sorts of records. But it goes back not to Charles Koch directly in terms of him giving anybody any instructions to flout the laws, but to this culture that he not just created, but has kind of drilled into people day after day after day. And so that is probably the biggest question the book raises, is how culpable is Charles Koch, is the culture that he created for this dark side that he relates. And just finally, Andrew, do you think, having read the book, and knowing what you do about the whole nature of U.S. business and what's going on there, that the legacy of what Charles Koch has built up will be enduring? I mean, I think you finish your review talking a bit about how we all live in Cokeland now, but will we continue to live in Cokeland? I think there are two elements to that, the political one and the corporate one. Charles Koch is now in his early 80s. He does have one son in the business. Chase Koch, who has not really chased the succession very aggressively, but definitely is written about as standing ready to take this over. I think it would be surprising if he didn't play a role in its future. There are obviously non-family executives who could also do that. The question is whether anybody could quite maintain that unique culture that seems to flow so directly from the head of the man who runs this company and has done so for more than 50 years. Political question, I think, is more open. Trumpism is not the same as Cokeism. And there is a real question about how well the Coke message is doing in Washington in Trump's Republican Party. I think that'll maybe settled in the next election. But I think as long as Charles Coke has breath in him, he will continue to play an enormous role in the political life of America. Beyond that, I don't detect that Chase Coke is going to pursue that in quite the same way. Thanks, Andrew. Fascinating discussion. We could go on, but I think we're out of time now. Thank you all for listening. And don't forget, if you missed our previous episodes on Russia's summer of discontent or the bleak outlook for investment bankers, you can find them all on the usual podcast platforms. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, 
crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.